Okay, thank you um, for the introduction. Thank you for the opportunity to talk um, or argue, as the case may be, as we proceed. And, and again, thank you for actually showing up this morning. Um, it looked like many people were enjoying themselves a great deal last night. Um, I almost invariably put this slide up um, just to make it clear that people are allowed to um, tweet, remember, um, and perhaps even think about the presentation as we go forward. Obviously, I'll be arguing that nothing's going to change at all, um, because that's what I always do. What I want to try and convince you of is that there are enough clues in the technology ecosystem at the moment to give us an idea um, of where things might go, and that the fundamental things that we think of as making up a journal will have to change as a result of the technology capabilities that we have today. Um, prognostication, of course, is, as we know, always difficult, especially about the future, so I'm going to be a little bit vague about some aspects of this, but I want to try and point out those sort of key points, or some of the key points along the way. Um, so, of course, I, I don't necessarily mean to be um, saying that I'm coming from a future or the, or the future, um, and we still don't have our jetpacks. We've been waiting for them for some time, um, perhaps, in this space. So how are we going to figure out what is going to change, what is not going to change, um, and what that looks like? So I, I draw the title, obviously, from this you know, perhaps now overused um, Cory Doctorow quote, but I think it's it's a really, actually a deep insight that if you can see clearly the world around you and find those pockets where things are happening, this can tell you a great deal about how the world will change. And of course the challenge always lies in figuring out which of those pockets are the ones you should actually be paying attention to. I'd add to that this quote and this is not actually intended as a dig at incumbent publishers or libraries in particular. It also refers to the academy itself. We are all members of institutions of one sort or another, and we make assumptions about the way the world works. And I think some of those assumptions are going to be a challenge, and some of them are going to be broken down over the next few years. It's not clear that we need research institutions that have walls and buildings anymore. It's not clear that each of those would need a library. It's not clear, I would argue, that we need journals or publishers in the way that we've thought about them. And when we think about these things, we always need to be aware of our inbuilt human need to see the world as continuing, to see what we've done before as part of what we're going to do after, and that we feel sometimes with our heads in the sand, that our jobs are safe and that the future is something predictable. So the question that we're arguing at its core is this one of, will the journal be transformed? Um, I will argue that technology is already doing that in some ways and will radically do it in the future. Um, but I did want to start, and this is the privilege of going first, to try and start by pinning down actually what do we mean by a journal? Inevitably, Michael and I will agree that some things will change and some things will not change. And the interesting question is which one of those 
which ones are the ones that will change and which will not. But unless we have some sense of what we mean by a journal, then we're not going to get to, to, to the answer to this question. So I think we probably perhaps recognize this as a journal. Um, I think we probably mostly agree that these are probably journals in, in a way that we would understand. Of course, this is also a journal, as is this. Two very different organizations, very, very different objects in many ways, but nonetheless two things we, that we would recognize as falling into that category of, of journals. I, I think it's really difficult to define what a journal is, but I think most of us would argue that we'd recognize it when we see it. Is this a journal? I think most of us would probably feel that it's not. This is Figshare, service that was built by Mark Harnell and is now hosted by Digital Science, which started with a question, what is the smallest useful piece of research to communicate? And the answer that came out of that discussion was a figure, a data set, a diagram with enough context, with enough description to make it comprehensible, to make it understandable. And so Mark went away and built this service where you can essentially take data, a little bit of text, some graphics, and upload those. It's not peer-reviewed. It's not selective in any particular form. It takes a wide range of different formats. Um, it has an RSS feed. In a sense, it has a table of contents. But it doesn't seem to fit what we would traditionally understand as being a journal. So, so how can we sort of pin this down? So I'm going to try and, and get a set of characteristics that I think we can reasonably agree to find what we mean by a journal. So a journal contains articles. Um, those articles are recognizable in some sense. I'll come back to that in a second. It will generally have some sort of process that selects those articles. We may disagree on what the right processes are, exactly how they work, or even what they are in some cases, but there's some sort of selection process. And journals will generally have a publisher who manages that process. And a journal will only belong to one publisher, and an article will only belong to one journal. Those are characteristics that I think are probably at the core of what we understand by a journal. And those articles have a recognizable form, some sort of narrative text. They're about a certain length. They tend to have a set of sections, at least within disciplines we'd recognize. They have a single version of record. There is a correct, the right version. And that is a single version. There is, in a sense, we heard yesterday that researchers are concerned if they have the wrong version. As I say, an article appears in one journal. And that's a kind of fundamental principle of the way we've operated the system. So I haven't given all of these characteristics as a, as a way of cheating. I'm not going to present the argument that if I can show that one of those is no longer the case, that I've, that I've won the argument. I actually want to suggest that the whole thing is actually a house of cards, and that pretty much every one of those characteristics is going to break down in one form or another. Um, and when it does, all of these systems 
will in fact need to go undergo a radical transformation to remain relevant. But let's have a look at some of this technology. So I want to show you some more journals, or things that I think are, are convincingly could be journals. This is, this is PLOS Currents. This is the most recent PLOS Currents um, for disasters, rapid publication, but still recognizably narrative papers, has a selection process. We might disagree over whether it's peer review, but there is a selection process there. Um, and I think what's interesting is that this is also a journal built on the same technology, on the same technology platform. This is, this is a knowledge blog on the projects of Phil Lord. This is um, a journal run out of Ubiquity Press, again, on the same technology platform. Um, and these are all new efforts and, and, and new journals doing, doing new kinds of things. So this platform, you know, does it support peer review? Does it, does it have the, the, the standards of, of identifiers, of, of indexing that we kind of expect as, as ways of dealing with the literature? And does it, as a new technology platform, support things beyond what we're used to from our print paradigm? Because I think that technological evolution is something that we expect from our journals um, as they go online. So in terms, of, in terms of peer review, yes, there are a range of peer review systems that, that can be used um, from you know, simple commenting through to um, you know, more detailed systems. You can actually have some really nice technological processes here um, where you can actually have a peer review process that occurs on a line by line or paragraph by paragraph basis. That's just a simple plug-in for this system. In terms of identifiers, PLOS Currents is indexed in PubMed Central, PubMed and PubMed Central as well as Scopus. Um, the knowledge blogs are all dealt with, um, all have DOIs, as does, as does the PLOS material indexed by Google Scholar. That's relatively easy to set up. And it, also these things go into archiving system. Ubiquity Press is actually a member of clocks, amongst other things. So what about the multimedia? Well, <sighs> multimedia is straightforward because, of course, what I'm talking about is WordPress. All of these journals, all of these systems are built on WordPress, that thing that started off as a blogging engine. We heard a little bit about how much journal systems cost. WordPress, of course, is free. Although it's probably had somewhere around about $250 million sunk into its development over the last five years. It's incredibly flexible. It can contain any kind of content that you're interested in, and there are plugins out there for pretty much anything. It's very straightforward. It's scalable. And I think the critical point I want to make is that it will only get better. You might argue that WordPress is not quite good enough for your journals today. But this is the worst that your free competition will ever be. I can put together a journal using these systems in 10 minutes for the cost of a domain name I can dial up free plugins that will let me scale that up to millions of page views a second just by dialing up some Amazon stuff. The publishing part of this, the publicating part of this, as Jan Velterop says, is a mugs game. Publishing is easy. So the publisher part of this system, the publisher part of what we see as a journal, 
I think, as a core service, is simply going to disappear. But these are still journals, recognisably journals. So when I go to the other end and look at, look at articles, and I want to put this in the context of my own, my own sort of research experience. So I've been, I've been taking some, some notes of some of the questions, some of the research questions that I had to deal with in the last couple of weeks. So here's, here's a, a set of examples. You would, might guess from this that I do a bunch of rather different and not necessarily connected things. And I want to show you how I go about answering these questions. And what I'm showing you is, is mock-ups. I did this after the, after the case. You'll see that because some of the links will obviously have already been clicked. But these are the processes that I went through to find the information that I was after. So the first one, what's the R in Ralstonia Eutropha? Literally, that's what I did. I typed in R Eutropha Wikipedia and I got the answer. Actually, when I went through to Wikipedia, I got told that actually Ralstonia is possibly not the right name. It's actually been changed to Vortersia, but everyone uses Ralstonia, so that's, so that's what we mean by it. So I didn't actually even need to go to a resource to find the answer to the question. I just got that by the autocomplete from Google. So the next one was this issue, what's the Dubai scattering formula? Now, in this case, I did go to Wikipedia and it didn't quite have the answer that I wanted. But this second hit, that thing there, because I didn't just want the equation. I needed, a, I needed something that was implementable as code. And this has been optimized. Interestingly, this is the instructions for a piece of software which is no longer available. But it was still the second hit. And it was still very easy for me to find the information that I was actually after. Again, I've gone nowhere near a journal, nowhere near an article yet. So, wanting to understand about the structure of this particular biological molecule, again, I go to a trusted source. The PDB is a trusted source of data on structure. A little bit of indirection here because I end up in a funny sort of side page. But ultimately, a few clicks and I've ended up arriving at the place where I can download the data that I wanted to be able to move on with this particular project. So, so far I've used autocomplete in Google. I've gone one step from Google to a web page that had the answer to the question I wanted. And I've gone to a database, a trusted database, that contains the type of information that I was specifically after. Now you might argue that these are not fair examples. They're not examples of trying to understand the state of knowledge um, in a particular area. So here's the final example where I was trying to understand what previous work had been done looking at salt dependence and small angle scattering. Now, Google is failing me here. It does send me to some, some articles. This one turns out not to actually be useful and I don't have access to it, which is a bad combination. But this is just not working terribly well. So ultimately, I give up and I go to Google Scholar where I get a set of articles and I went and looked at these articles and about a third of them actually had some of the information I was interested in and I spent six hours collating the information that I needed to go on with the experiment that I wanted to do. Given that, I would choose a database, I would choose Wikipedia, I would choose a web page, I would choose any source of information possible 
accept a journal article by choice when I need to find information. I think Greg made this point very effectively yesterday. When it comes to the problems that I face as a researcher, the article is a terrible way of transferring the information I'm after. Most of the time I have questions. Most of the time I'm looking for data. Occasionally, I'm looking for the description of an area or an introduction to something, at which point I go to a review article or Wikipedia for preference, if it's an area that Wikipedia covers well. And I don't think I'm alone in this behavior. So if I'm making the claim that technology could do this better, then let's see some examples of that working in practice. Here's a Q&A site, Stack Overflow. This is for, for programmers. So I'm asking a very specific question. What's interesting here is that other people have asked this question. But those questions have been rated. And some people ask the question better than others. So I can go to there. And then I can find answers that have been rated. And again, I found the answer to the question I was after in this specific case very quickly. You might argue this wouldn't provide the kind of tools we need to select people for grants or for jobs. And yet, in actual practice, this forum has become a great way of finding people with a very specific set of tools that are necessary, you know, the people who are able to do this. And you might think that it wouldn't work in research, but actually this site, Math Overflow, is immensely successful. This is not people asking high school level questions. The mathematicians I've talked to about this, they've already coined a term. They call it math overflow hard. Is a question hard enough to be worth asking on math overflow? So for Q&A, we actually have really effective means of getting at those answers, both of asking the questions, of commissioning answers to questions, of telling which ones are the good questions and which ones are the good answers. And that's just one example of the kind of thing that I think is important. And of course, Google is very good at answering really important questions, just not the ones we're mostly interested in as researchers. This is the level of technological capability that we expect when dealing with information online. And we're a long way from having this as researchers interacting with the literature. So I'm going to argue that we, publishers are not needed as an integrated service. There are probably people who will provide some of the services of making things public in the future, but I think they're more likely to be Amazon and Google than the people we're used to. I would argue that the article is not fit for purpose. For most of the purposes, I, as a researcher, use it. It's surprising. One of the things it's actually quite good for is helping people from outside the research community look at research, because it provides a nice little package for them to take away. But that wasn't the reason we thought we wanted it. So where does this leave us with this thing in the middle? The journal. Is, is this still, are there still categories of this, parts of this, that are important? And we know that researchers are very attached to journals. We know that when surveyed, researchers keep saying over and over again they don't want to see things change too much. They dislike many aspects of this, but they feel very uncomfortable about the notion that a journal might go away. 
But I think we have two problems in figuring out what it is that researchers are attached to. Problem one is that I think for the most part as researchers we lie to ourselves about what we're actually doing. I don't think we tell the truth very often when asked in surveys and that means that surveys need to be really good. But we do know, I think it's fairly convincing, that people are very concerned about the brand of journals as a way of branding their work, as a way of positioning their work. People talk a lot about the value of journals as filters, um, and I'm not going to repeat the talk I gave last year, um, but I think there's a significant amount of evidence that says that actually, as a filter, journals are not doing a terribly good job. The one I'll offer, just as a, as a throwaway, is the impact factor is better correlated with the chance of a paper being retracted than it is with the number of citations a paper in a given journal gets. And that isn't impossible. It's actually a consequence of the way the figure's calculated. What researchers are really after, if we examine ourselves, we look at journals, we're after the prestige. We're after the elevation, the branding, the, the sense that our work fits into some sort, of, some sort of important category and is in the right place. And to a very large extent, we've ended up with a situation where we're just building bigger bedposts to stick notches on. We talk a lot about researchers and readers being the same people, and that's true. But increasingly, we have this split personality issue when we're doing it. When we read, we hate the people who've written the articles. And yet we keep writing these things, and we keep writing them because we need them for preferment, for prestige, for grants and for jobs, not because we like doing it and not because we like reading them. I think we're increasingly building a situation that is unstable, that is unsustainable, and that will at some point collapse. So what will actually bring change? What's the, the positive thing that might take us there? Well, one option is collapse. And I think we're very likely to see a collapse in the humanities around the monograph culture. No one seems to be prepared to really deal with the core problems of how to change preferment, grant funding, and job selection in the humanities. And what that means is that we're just going to run out of books for people to publish. I think more competition will help in many of these spaces. And I like the fact that there are many of these small startups like Figshare that are starting to challenge the traditional assumptions of how things work. What I'd really like to believe, and again, borrowing from Greg's talk, is that someone somewhere is really going to figure out the best way to make that interface work, that it will be a design principle that will make that user interface really effective. And I think once we stop pretending that we're actually consuming articles, we will inevitably stop writing them, at least in their current form. But what will that look like? Um, and I know I'm in the process of having to finish up here, so, as I said, I don't know. I'm not going to get into too many games of trying to predict the future too precisely. Um, but I think we've got some clues, and I think part of that is that what we're going to see is a publication of much smaller pieces, fragments of the research, the data, the methods, the process, the ideas, things like Figshare will grow up. And then we will build those still, sometimes into narrative objects, 
or into other things, into indexes, into aggregations, into whatever might be useful. But the key point, the absolutely key point, and this is why I chose Lego as my example, is that we can build something else out of them. We can change it for a different audience. We can put it in a different place. We can organize it in different ways. We can bring different sets of pieces together. And that is what will make the interface, the user interface of our research communication systems compelling because they will deliver what we have come to expect from Amazon and Google, that you will deliver to me the information that I'm interested in now for the problem I have at this moment. and we'll be able to deliver that differently to different audiences. And that's, in the end, what I think will transform the journal away from what we would currently see as its core characteristics. The core characteristics of a journal are stability, singularity, the single article that's never been published anywhere else, in one form, in the correct form, that is then stuck for all time in that particular state. And that simply isn't the way we consume information today as consumers. So why should it be the way we consume information as researchers? And I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you, Cameron. Um, we'll be taking uh, questions later on after the debate uh, has started. Um, so I'll hand over now to Michael.